Thanks, Sarah, for that reading. It is a long reading. Uh, it's, a, it's a story I'm sure many of us would know and love. I hope you did do the four chapters of reading this past week, from chapter 6 to chapter 9. That was just a snippet of it. For next week, anyway, you can prepare by reading chapter 10 and chapter 11. Uh, well, this is a story I'm sure many of us know, but let's again come to God and ask him to teach us what he has to teach us today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us, for teaching us and revealing yourself to us about yourself. We pray, Lord, that today as we consider the story of Noah and the flood, we pray, Lord, that we may hear you speak to us, help us to learn what we need to learn, and we pray, Lord, that our lives might be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Okay, now today is a special day, isn't it? The 2nd of September, an important day. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, it's Father's Day. Of course, that's important. But more than that, Father's Day changes each year. It's the first Sunday of, of September each year, but the 2nd of September is a significant date. Now, what is that? It's because the 2nd of September today marks the day of, of Japan's formal surrender at the end of World War II. So in 1945, on the 2nd of September, Japan officially surrendered. They signed a document, a document called the the Instrument of Surrender. And that was on this day in 1945. Now this this document was signed on a U.S. battleship, a battleship known by the name of the USS Missouri. Now this battleship is no longer in service, but you can see this ship if you go to Hawaii in Pearl Harbor. It's parked there in Pearl Harbor. Now, many years ago, Yvonne and myself, we had the privilege of going to Hawaii for a little holiday, and we went to Pearl Harbor, and we went to see this ship, this battleship, the ship on which Japan signed formally that they are surrendering to the Allies. So in 2005, we took some photos. Here's a a picture of the battleship, Battleship Missouri, uh, at Pearl Harbor, parked there. And you can actually enter this ship, go around, go in these decks up on high. And when you go to the top deck, you can actually go to the spot where this important document was signed. The very spot. There's a, there's a little plaque there. And here's a photo of it. I'm not sure if you can read that. But this plaque reads, Over this spot, on the 2nd of September 1945, the instrument of formal surrender of Japan to the Allied powers was signed thus bringing to a close the Second World War. The ship at that time was at anchor in Tokyo Bay. So that's the very spot in which Japan formally surrendered, that very spot there, and you can step on it if you like. And the document which they signed, the instrument of surrender, well, here's a photo of it. Um, It was signed by uh, the Japanese, their their surrender to the Allied forces. And the Allied forces, well, they were represented by by many nations, and Australia is among one of those that signed that document. Now, that was the end of World War II, a very important and significant war in the last hundred years, a war in which uh, about 70 million people were killed, devastating war. A world war which involved most of the world. Devastating war. But the interesting thing about World War II was that several decades earlier, people would have never thought that that war would have started. 
people several decades earlier would ne- have thought, never thought that another world war would have happened. And that's because several decades earlier, 31 years earlier in fact, there was of course World War I, the Great War. Now that was also a world war, a devastating war, a, a war where millions of people were killed. But you see, that was what people called the Great War. And that's because people believed that that was the war to end all wars. That was the war to solve the problem of the world, to stop any other war from happening. But of course that was not the case. Because 21 years later, after the end of World War I, we had World War II. And not only that, we had many other wars after that war. And so why was that? I mean, the Great War, World War I, the war to men end all wars, why was it that it didn't work? Why was it that there were still wars after that? Well, historians have come up with many reasons, and many reasons were related to because the issue, the problem at the end of World War I uh, were not resolved. There were still unresolved issues. The Great War, there was really people were hoping to fix up the problem of the world, did not fix up the situation inside countries, inside nations. It it didn't fix up the issue between nations, their relationship. Now, why do I speak about that? Well, in a similar way, we're looking at the flood today, and our passage, the flood of Noah, uh, the, the story of Noah and the flood, it was also a worldwide disaster almost, a flood that was so devastating. All mankind were killed except the one family. In this flood, all evil and wickedness were done with. And so you expect that that flood, the flood in which Noah was saved, would be the flood that would end all floods. The flood in which evil was done with, the world was sorted, the world was fixed up, just like the expectation of the Great War. But did that do that? Did the flood of Noah solve the problem of the world? Did it fix up the situation? And so that's what we'll be thinking about today. And so what's the situation so far that brought us to this context? We've been working through, our, working through Genesis. What brought us to this situation? Well, so far in Genesis, we've seen humanity from great heights. Humanity in perfect relationship with God, in harmony with each other, and also in harmony with the world. But from there, they've plummeted from those great heights to new lows. Adam, the first man, he disobeyed God and he was ashamed. And then we hear of his son, Cain, kills his brother, Abel, and he tries to deny it. And then not only, not only that, a few generations later with Lamech, he kills a man and he's actually proud of it. And so we've seen the descent of mankind from those great heights into what we have now, a time where everyone was wicked and evil. And so that brings us to this chapter. God's looking at the world, and he's making an assessment. He's making an assessment on the world. And what does God say? Well, in what God says, we can sort of sense God's pain, God's displeasure, God's anguish, God's heartache. You, know, you can hear God's grief in these words. God is extremely depressed by what he sees. This creation, which was very good, now, in a sense, God doesn't want to have a look at it. Have a look with me at chapter 6, verse 5. And hear God's pain here. So chapter 6, verse 5. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Can he God's anguish there, God's pain, God's grief? But does it sound strange to you? Does it sound strange that God would grieve having created mankind? That God would, in a sense, regret bringing life into existence? What do you think? Does that sound strange? That God would grieve in this way? Well, in a sense, God's grief was similar to the parents of a boy by the name of Jackson Carr. The parents of this boy will probably have felt this way. Now, do you, I wonder if you know the story of Jackson Carr. Jackson Carr, he's a, he was a six-year-old boy. This is in 2002 in Texas, in America. Six-year-old boy. One day, he went missing. And so that obviously sparked a search for him. Police were involved to search for this missing boy. Now, this boy, he had two siblings. He had a sister, 15-year-old sister, and a 10-year-old brother. And so the police, they were searching, and they asked the siblings, where's your brother? Well, initially they said, well, we were just playing hide and seek. And so the search went on for several hours, and eventually one of the siblings confessed to the police. They killed their brother. They killed their brother, the 15-year-old sister and the 10-year-old boy. And so they led the police to where the body was. It was buried under two feet of mud and dirt. They strangled their brother and they stabbed him in the neck. Just imagine that. Imagine what this parent would have gone through. Just think about that. I'm not even sure if there are words enough to express what they would have felt. The anguish, the pain, the hurt, the distress, the mourning, all at the same time. In a sense, they didn't really just lose one child in that, in that situation, did they? They, in a sense, lost all three. To think, to mourn the death of one child, that is heartbreaking enough. But to learn that that child was killed by their two other children, that would have been heartbreaking to the extreme. And so you can imagine, the parents would probably be thinking, why did I bring these children into this world? Why did I give them life? So you can feel the grief, the heartache, and we feel it just hearing the story. Just imagine what God was feeling. To look at this world, beautiful world, beautiful creation, but to see them kill each other, to see them abuse each other, to see them be violent to each other, to see them hate each other, God was grieving. And that's where we come to in our study, chapter 6 of Genesis. And that was God's assessment from the heights of being perfect harmony with God to these lows now. And so what did God do about it? What would you expect God to do about a situation like that? Well, you see, God is a just God. God is a God who acts in judgment as well. And we see this in chapter 6, verse 7. Have a look. Chapter 6, verse 7. God says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men 
and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Do you see how serious this problem has become? That God would destroy the very creation he made. That God will wipe out mankind, people who were made in his image. That God will kill off all the animals. It's to show us how serious this problem has become. Now, this punishment is terrifying, horrifying. But I'm sure reading this, some of you might be thinking, wasn't God a bit too harsh to judge the world in that way, to kill every single person except one family? To kill all the animals except those who fit in the ark? Wasn't God a bit too harsh? Did he go overboard here? I mean, some of you might be thinking, what what about those harmless puppies? Those kittens, those smelly kittens, those little lambs? Surely God was too harsh. But was he? Did God go overboard? Well, I suspect that if you're thinking that, if you're thinking in your mind that God was harsh at the flood, well, it actually reveals something about you. It reveals that perhaps you don't really understand God's justice. It reveals perhaps you don't really understand God's holiness. And it shows that you really have a low view of sin. You really underestimated the seriousness of sin. You see, when God sees wickedness and evils, it's ugly, it's hideous, it's odious. And so the judgment that God did do was just. The, the punishment was fitting of the crime. And so we look at this story. How then did God go about wiping mankind and the animals? Well, in this story, I'm not sure if you notice, but there's in a sense a reversal of creation. God sort of undoes what he's done. God brings back creation. Have a look with me at, at, at this passage. Now, do you remember what happened on the second day of creation? In Genesis chapter 1. On the second day, remember, God separated the waters above the expanse from the waters below the expanse. You see, God separated, that put, God put the sky, separated the waters above from the waters below. But look at how God reversed that. Look at chapter 7, verse 11 with me. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Do you see that? It was a reversal of what happened on the second day. The floodgates of heaven were open. Now water was pouring down. There was that separation, but now water's coming down. But not only that, remember what happened on the third day of creation. Well, on the third day, God separated the sea from the dry land. Okay, there was forming and separation. But look at what happened here. Chapter 7, verse 17 now. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And then in verse 20, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. There was that separation on the third day. But you see, that separation is no more. The land, the world was filled with water, with sea. It was everywhere. But not only that, what happened on the fifth and sixth day of creation? Well, on the fifth day, God created the birds. On the sixth day, God created the land animals and human beings. Well, how was that reversed? Well, look at verse 21 
21 with me. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. So we can reverse day two, day three, day five, and day six. God sort of uncreated the world, undone what he did. Life itself was destroyed. And so what are we left with at the end of this? The world was filled with water, it was formless, and it was chaotic. What's that to remind us of? It's to remind us of Genesis chapter 1, the beginning, before God brought things into existence. It's brought back to that state, a world filled with water, formless and chaotic. And so that judgment was God's judgment, and it was God's righteous and just judgment on the world. But of course, you know the Noah story, that's not the full story. God is the God of justice, but God is also the God of mercy. And we saw that in this story, didn't we? I mean, though the whole world was wicked and evil, deserving of punishment, God displayed his mercy to Noah, to his family, to the animals that made it to the ark. And not only that, God, in this story, began the process of recreation. You see, God sort of uncreated the world, in judgment, but now God goes ahead to recreate the world. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 1 now. Look at what happens. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. See, that's the beginning of this recreation. And so, once again, there was this separation between the waters above and the waters below. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. You see that separation is happening again. And the rain had stopped falling from the sky. And once again, day 3 of creation, we're at the separation between the sea and the land, where that happens again. Chapter 8, verse 5. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So once again, there's this separation and forming. God's recreating the world. And once again, we're seeing the creation mandate again. Remember the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful? Well, we're seeing again here. God is telling Noah and his family and the animals to once again be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. It's a re-establishment of that creation mandate. And not only that, God once again re-establishes the times and seasons. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 22. God re-establishes the seasons as long as the earth endures. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so in this story, we've seen God's judgment, but we're also seeing God's mercy. God's mercy to Noah And God's mercy in recreating this world. It's like a new beginning. And so so in this story, this is the God of the Bible. We're seeing that. God of justice and God of mercy. It's not a God who's a tyrant, who has no compassion. And it's also not a God who's like a, a teddy bear, soft and full of compassion, 
but knows of no justice. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God of justice and a God of mercy. And that's important to remember. And so really we quite quickly, quite briefly, went through the story of Noah and the flood. Famous story, a story I'm sure many of us would know, since childhood even. But what are we meant to see in this story? What are we meant to learn? Well, in a sense, in this story, we're meant to see that this is a new beginning, isn't it? It's a new beginning. God, in a sense, recreated the world. It's sort of brand new again. But not only that, do you notice how Noah was so different to the first man? It's like this new man now, the head of, the, of this mankind, uh, was so different to the first one. Sort of like it's a new beginning again. Adam, he disobeyed God, he failed. But Noah, how was he described? He was a righteous man, a blameless man. He found favour in the eyes of the Lord. He even walked with the Lord. And when, when God told Noah to do something, well, we hear it, this repeating phrase, chapter 622, Noah did everything just as God commanded and then in chapter 5, 7, we read again, Noah did everything just as God commanded. You see, the first man stuffed up. Seems like there's this new beginning. This, this man now who's obedient, who believes in God, who lives God's way. And not only that, after leaving the ark, what did Noah do? Well, he built an, he built an altar to the Lord. He sacrificed animals and burnt offerings on it. And that aroma was pleasing to God. So it seems like Noah's got it all right. It's a new beginning, new creation almost, and this man who's so different to Adam. Adam failed, but this man found favour in God's eyes. And so you think, when you read this story, things are looking good again for mankind, isn't it? They've gone from bad to worse, from Adam to just before Noah, but now things are looking good again a new creation, a man who obeys God. And so you think, you know, that's the flood that ends all floods. This is it. Things are looking good. But notice what God said to Noah. Almost as soon as he left the ark. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 21. God says to Noah, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So you read this story, you're thinking Noah's a righteous man, he's a good man, but then you read this verse, God's assessment of people after the flood. You see, they still have a heart problem. Every inclination of his heart is evil. That's talking about Noah. That's talking about the sons of Noah. You see, though he was a righteous man, that was still God's assessment on mankind. You know, the flood it was meant to remove all wicked and evil. And it sort of did do that. It removed all the wicked and evil people. But yet the flood didn't remove the evil within. It didn't remove the problem within, the problem of the heart, the deep and dark and sinister problem of the heart. And we actually see this by the end of chapter 9. We actually see human evilness again. It felt like a new beginning, but yet Noah and his sons were no different. 
By the end of chapter 9, we didn't read that in our reading before, but by the end, we read that Noah succumbs to drunkenness. That's not a good thing. And not only that, we read of this this interesting scenario where one of Noah's sons, Ham, breached this relationship with his father. Ham saw Noah naked, and somehow that breached their relationship, and Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed for that. So you see, you're thinking, it's a new beginning, but yet Noah and his sons still had the heart problem. The flood didn't get rid of the heart problem. And so what are we to think? We're meant to have a sense of optimism, of hope, after looking at this. But really, the heart problem remains, and it goes from generation to generation, from Noah to his sons to their sons. And so what needs to happen? What's the needed solution? What needs to happen? You know, to get rid of that problem of the heart, that deep, that dark, that sinister, that evil problem of the heart. What must happen? Well, when we read this story, we're sort of, in a sense, left hanging. You know, the flood which we hope will remove all evil and wickedness from this world you know, a world event which would give humanity a new beginning. The flood that would end all floods. But in the end, the problem was still there. And it's sort of what we saw in the last century with World War I. People were thinking, this is the war that will end all wars. This will be the war that will solve the problem of the world. But it wasn't that. Wars continued after the Great War. And that's because the people before the war and the people after the war were no different. The problem of the human heart was still there. And you saw that. Those were the things that triggered World War II. Germany and Italy and Japan, they, they were greedy. They pursued this expansionist policy, wanted to invade other nations and take more land for themselves. You see, the problem of the human heart was still there before the war and after the war. And that's what we're seeing here in the flood. So much hope, so much optimism, but the problem was still there. But notice in this story that despite that problem, God knew that Noah still had that problem. God said every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. God knew that. But yet, in this story, we see God's commitment to humanity. We see God's commitment to preserving human life. Do you notice that after the flood and God's promises? Have a look at chapter, chapter 9, verse 11. God says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And in verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You see, God was still committed to this creation. God was still committed to the mankind he's created. And the rainbow was a, a sign of that promise. But you must think, you know, given how bad and evil the world was, how terrible they were, Noah and his sons were no different. You must think, why did God make such a big promise? Why did God decide to preserve human life? 
to show this rainbow as a sign that he will preserve human life. Why did God do that? I mean, it would make sense for God to just wipe out everyone, wipe out the problem of the human heart and start from scratch, take up some dust and create a new mankind. God could have done that. But why didn't he? Well, you see, God's commitment to preserving human life was because of God's commitment to one day sending that serpent crusher. Remember that? We, we looked at that in Genesis chapter 3. Amidst the, the curses of God, one of the curse to the serpent was that an offspring of Eve will crush his head. An offspring of Eve will crush his head. So that promise within the curse that God will one day send a descendant of mankind who will defeat evil, who will overthrow death, who will reverse the curse, and who will deal with the problem of the human heart. You see, it's God's commitment to that. That's why God preserves human life. God decided to preserve human life. Now, who's this serpent crusher? Well, we've already heard over the last two weeks that this serpent crusher, this descendant of Eve, is the Lord Jesus. We get to, we get to Matthew chapter 1 and we read, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David. That's the serpent crusher. And so what happened with Jesus when he came around? Well, you see, in the flood, we saw the justice and the mercy of God. God was just in his judgment of the evil and wicked. And in the flood, we saw God's mercy extend to Noah and his family and those animals. But what happened with Jesus? Well, he died on the cross. And at the cross of Christ, we also see the justice and mercy of God. But this time, there's a little switch. This profound thing, there's a switch. Because at the cross, God's justice, God's judgment is on the righteous. And God's mercy extends to the wicked, to the evil people. People like you and me. And in that one event, at the cross of Christ, the problem of the human heart is finally, is completely dealt with. Because those who believe in what Jesus did at the cross, in taking the penalty for sin and wickedness, those who believe in that, well, what has God done? God has taken out a heart of stone, a heart of wickedness, a heart of evil, a heart of sin. And God has put in there a heart of flesh, a heart that will obey God, a heart that will trust God, and a heart that worships God. You see, the story of Noah, God's justice and God's mercy, it wasn't the flood to end all floods. It was, in fact, looking forward to this other event where God's mercy and God's justice meets again. And it's also looking forward to that serpent crusher. And that's why God preserved Noah's life. Now, today, the 2nd of September... It was the day that marked Japan's surrender to the Allied forces. There might be non-Christians amongst us tonight. There might be some of you who don't yet believe this. Perhaps you can make today, the 2nd of September, the day Japan surrendered to the Allies, make today, the 2nd of September, the day you surrender your life to Jesus. The day you put your trust in Jesus 
for taking the penalty for you. The day where you receive God's mercy. The day where you're given a new heart. A heart of flesh. And the heart of stone is thrown away. The day where you make a new beginning. The real beginning. You see, the flood wasn't that beginning. The beginning happens when you put your trust in Jesus. So if you're a non-Christian here tonight, perhaps today's the day for you to surrender your life to Jesus. But for the rest of us, the rest of us who already believe in Jesus, already have placed our trust in Jesus, well, what a great reminder this is to us today, especially today when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, just as the rainbow was a sign to show off God's promise to preserve human life, well, the Lord's Supper is a sign to remind us of what God did at the cross of Christ, the point where God's justice and God's mercy met, the point at which we can be given a new heart and a new beginning. But even more than that, we're reminded today that at the death of Christ, it was really the death to end all deaths. Not all deaths, but our deaths. It was the death to end our deaths. You know, World War I, the Great War, the war that was meant to end all wars, well, it didn't happen. But the death of Christ is the death that ends our death. Those of you who place your trust in Jesus, because no longer will we die, no longer will we die for our wickedness and our evilness. What wonderful news that is. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your justice and your mercy. We praise you for the fact that you did not judge us for our wickedness and evil, but you judged your son Jesus. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you extended mercy to us, wicked and evil people. We pray, Lord, today, if there are those amongst us who have yet to surrender our life to Jesus, that you might work in our hearts, that that might be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.